you have a Bible, I would encourage you to turn them open to page 816 if you're using those black Bibles or Matthew chapter 12 and whatever Bible you might have. The comments to which I'll be addressing you all will come from Matthew chapter 12, starting in verse 15 through 21. I'm sure some of you haven't been around for all of the recent sermons that we've been doing throughout, so one quick way to recap what's going on in this section of Matthew is that so far we've heard 10 chapters of what it's like for Jesus to do life and ministry on this earth. What we're finding in chapters 11 and 12 are stories about people's responses to Jesus, which begs a question for you. What's your response to Jesus? Is it like what we saw earlier in chapter 11, like John the Baptist? Do you have doubts about Jesus? Or is it like what we saw last week, rejection of Jesus? We see doubts, we see rejection, and then we actually see people who come to him. Right in the middle of these two chapters, right at the very end of chapter 11, are these beautiful words, Jesus' invitation, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. And you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. One of the ways this section of Scripture is communicating to all of us is that Jesus is inviting us to respond by coming and resting and following him to learn from him, to learn how to live and be like Jesus, to center your entire life around him and what he's done and what he has said. The motivation for doing that given last week is come to Jesus because he provides rest. His yoke is easy. His burden is light. Practice weekly Sabbath to remind yourself that your ultimate rest is found in Jesus Christ. That was last week. This week, we're going to continue hearing the invitation, come to Jesus. Why? Because he is gentle and he is lowly in heart. See, as I read this passage in just a second, if that's not what you see in Matthew chapter 12, verses 15 through 20, come to Jesus because he is gentle and because he is lowly in heart. Follow along as I read. Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there, and many followed him. And he healed them all and ordered them not to make him known. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. And this is what I just read to you earlier in the service. Isaiah chapter 42. Behold, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased, I will put my spirit upon him, and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench, until he brings justice to victory, and in his name the Gentiles will hope. Come to Jesus. 
because he is gentle. That's point number one, my friends. Reason number one, to encourage, to persuade for us to come to Christ. He is gentle. If you look at verse 15, it says, Jesus, being aware of this, withdrew from there. Aware of what? Doesn't take hard to figure that one out. Look at verse 14. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy, also can be translated to kill, some religious, self-appointed, I used the comparison last week, think modern-day journalists, people who have no government authority, they have no religious authority, but they have self-appointed to watch out and see what everybody's doing and then tell them whether they're right or wrong. And then sometimes, because of what they do as they're spying on people like Jesus in the middle of a cornfield and saying, hey, you're plucking grain on a Sabbath, we're going to go tell everybody about it and we're going to try and get him killed. Sound, sound sometimes like journalists? I mean, maybe not killing people hopefully, but being aware of their plots to destroy him, their plans to try and kill Jesus, a hint foreshadowing what's going to come as we keep reading Matthew, that Jesus would die. If you're new to Christianity, this is one of the biggest parts of the story of Jesus. People wanted to kill him, and he died. More on that later, but here's the thing. When he first was aware of this plot for his death, he withdrew. And then many people followed him. And then he healed them all. I want you to just think about you being in that situation. I want you to imagine that you have just found out that there is a whole group of media people that have found out something and they're going to end up releasing it to the public and that's going to either lead to you going to jail or death sentence. Any of you feel like that might be a tough day? Might be a little anxious, worried, like that's a lot on my plate, that's a big burden to carry on my shoulders? What's the very next thing we see Jesus do after he finds out that he has a plot that is for him to die? People are after him. Well, he withdrew. And then he healed a bunch of people. This is the moment where I want you to see, come to Jesus, for he is gentle. If you and I were in that situation, let's be honest, we would say, this is the time where I teach you guys about boundaries. I've got a lot going on here, and it's time for you to kind of deal with your health and sickness and whatever else is going on. I kind of got something big to deal with right now. And it's almost as if, the writer quickly points out, Jesus is gentle. He heals all of them. Large crowds, and he heals them all. That's because this fulfills what Isaiah 42 said. He does not break bruised reeds. Do you know what a reed is? In the ancient world, it would have been used as a measuring stick. Think like a ruler or a yardstick. Sometimes, if it was bent or crooked, then it is of no use. What good is it to measure something or see how long something is if you've got a broken ruler? 
So it's worthless. It's useless. How does Jesus treat things that the world considers as useless? He does not further break them. When you read this word bruised, do not think, oh, well, it's just like I got a bruise. At least I didn't break the bone. No, that word is the same word used later on to talk about none of Jesus' bones were broken. It's the word to talk about sometimes things being snapped in part. The idea is you have an injured reed. You have a useless piece of reed. How does Jesus deal with something that's bent and crooked? It is not thrown away. It is not further broken for him. He restores it. He heals them all. He is gentle toward broken people and those who consider themselves worthless. If you feel like you're a candle that's about to lose its flame because the wick has gotten down so little. One of the Sabbath practices our family does every week is from a Jewish tradition of lighting two candles. One to remember the Sabbath and one to observe the Sabbath. So when we begin our Sabbath, we light the candles, we eat dinner together, and that's to say Sabbath has started. And then, when Sabbath ends, the next day, after dinner's out, we blow the candles out, and there's always a nice little discussion. Who's going to blow the candles out? Every time, because we have little candles that we're using, every week, they get smaller and smaller. And a lot of times, they just die out on their own, and you've got to replace it with another candle. So every week, we get the chance to see a tall, bigger candle get down to the very little bit of its life, where there's just the melted wax, and a small little wick. And you're supposed to picture that weak, little, worthless candle. We're not talking about Bath and Body Works fragrant candles, okay? We're talking about candles that were used for light. No electricity. Remember 2,000 years ago, we're reading an old ancient book? So what good is there a candle that has just a teeny little wick that's about to go out? Any of you at the end of your life? And you feel like my, my wick, my life is ending, I'm worthless to the world. The older I get, the less valuable I am to everyone around us. We prize in this world, especially in America, youthful, zealous, hardworking, strong people. How about weak things? Jesus does not snuff out those candles. He prizes the weak. He is gentle to all. All of them were healed toward bruised reeds and those who are like a candle about to go out. If you're not familiar, I want to make you well aware. One of the life-transforming moments of my life was when I got a copy of a small Puritan paperback by a man named Richard Sibbs, and it's called The Bruised Reed and the Smoldering Flax. That's the old King James translation of our text. The Bruised Reed and the smoldering flax. Richard Sibbs was called the doctor of the soul because he, write, he writes and preaches with such sweetness about Jesus. So here I was, finishing my first tour of ministry as a youth pastor for three years, and I would say I was a bruised reed. I was a wick that was coming down to the end because I was burnt out. My life was not in order like it should have been. I was not loving my wife the way I should. 
and there was a lot of change and stress, and we were moving from Illinois to Washington, D.C., and sure enough, in God's providence, in my lap, the bruised reed became the medicine for my soul. Life-transforming little Puritan paperback. If you don't think you'd be able to read it because you don't like old English, there's modern versions. If you don't think you would read it at all, come every Wednesday and to start our Wednesday Bible study, I read a couple pages of that book right now to get our Bible study going to meditate on Christ. But for those of you that aren't going to come on Wednesday and aren't going to read a book, I have to share a few lines from this gem of a book. I've taken a few collected portions, and I'm going to just preach a little section of this book to you now about Richard Sibb's meditation on the gentleness of Jesus. Sibb says, The condition to whom Jesus deals with people are bruised reeds and smoking flax. They are not trees. They aren't strong and whole, but they are reeds. They are bruised reeds. This is why the church in the Bible is often compared to weak things. The church is a dove among the fowls. It is a vine among the plants. It is a sheep amongst wild beasts. So therefore consider the different names that have been given to Jesus. The mildest of creatures like a lamb and a hen. Do these names not show his tender care? Consider the very name Jesus itself, which means Savior. Consider the way he binds up the brokenhearted and is like a mother who is the most tender and sweet to his most diseased and weakest child. This is the way Christ mercifully inclines himself to weak people. Consider how at Jesus' baptism, the Holy Spirit came upon him in the shape of a dove to show that he would be dove-like. He would be a gentle mediator. And then, consider his gut-wrenching compassion when he looked out at the people of Israel because they were sheep without a shepherd. He never, he never turned away the people who came to him. He came to die as a priest for his enemies. He shed tears for those who shed his blood. What a support then to our faith that the God, the Father of the heavens, the one who we offended by our sin is so pleased with the work of redemption in Jesus Christ and what comfort it is to see God's love rest on Jesus and him be well pleased with him Therefore, we may conclude that he is as well pleased with us as he is with Jesus Christ. I hope you want to come Wednesday nights now or pick up the bruised reed. It's 99 cents on Kindle, by the way, if you've not read it. It is not the Bible, but it's pretty close because there's a lot of Bible in it. Anyway, let's move on. Is this what you know Jesus to be like? gentle, merciful. 
If we as Christians say we are followers of Christ, is this the manner to which you're sensing his spirit in you? Gentleness and merciful, especially to the weak things and the weak people around you. Embassy church members, is this the way we think about our children's ministry? Below us, beneath us, or Christ-like who welcomed the children and said, come, children, do not push them away either. Is this the way we think about mentoring programs at Lake Louise or serving to give food at the Rand Grove community or what other opportunities you might have for those who are hurting and weak and struggling in the world around you? And friend, most of all, is this the way you think about yourself? I saved this last Sibs quote for this moment. If Jesus Christ is so merciful not to break us, then why do we break ourselves with our despair? Is this the way we think about ourselves? How many of you right now know that you are going through despair, through discouragement, and you're despondent and you're struggling? Could it be possible that today God wants you to hear that Christ is merciful to you? He will not break you. He doesn't kick you when you're down. This is how he treats you when you're down. So don't break yourself any further. Treat yourself the way Jesus treats you. Come to him. He is gentle. Secondly, come to Jesus because he is lowly in heart. Lowly in heart. If you notice, what I did here was in verse 15, Jesus, being aware of this, withdrew and then healed a bunch of people after finding out he was going to die. Wow, what gentleness. This fulfills the prophecy of a bruised reed he will not break, a smoldering wick he will not quench. But then look at the next sentence in verse 16. He ordered all of those that he healed not to make him known. Don't tell people about me. Don't spread my fame. That also fulfills the prophecy, which then goes on to say, My servant whom I've chosen, my beloved one whom my soul is well pleased, I will put my spirit on him and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. But he will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. Anyone noticing a paradox there? He will proclaim justice to the world, the nations. That's the word Gentiles, non-Jewish peoples. Jesus is in a Jewish context. Isaiah was a Jew writing to Jewish people. He's saying there's going to come a chosen servant who will proclaim justice to the world. But he won't do it loud. He'll do it quiet. You won't hear it around the streets. He's going to tell people, no, 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 don't go around and tell people about me. Quiet down. Now, part of that is because of what happened in verse 14. If you're trying to fulfill all that the Father has for you, you know of what your ultimate mission is, and that's to be killed outside of the city of Jerusalem. You're not in Jerusalem yet. You know now is not the time. So you're trying to simmer down all of the ruckus that's going on by his healings and his ministry, and there's already a word on the street, this guy needs to die. So you're not trying to increase the popularity. In fact, you're trying to be subtle and quiet and kind of slide in and out of towns and villages. 
So therefore, he is going to be a chosen servant. He is going to be the Messiah king, but he's not going to use the normal means to become a king. How many times do you find politicians become elected because they were so quiet? How many kings became rulers over a whole nation and took over an army because they were gentle and lowly in heart? Jesus is the paradoxical ruler. He is this prophetic servant, the servant of God, the messianic. Messianic means king, a king-like leader, but he's quiet. And he brings justice? That's that's another king description, isn't it? Who who brings down the gavel, the judge, the, the king over the nation? So he's going to come with force. He's going to come with might. He's going to come with military. No, no, he's going to come quiet. Are Are you catching the paradox now, the tension here? His healing ministry is obviously showing his gentleness toward those who are hurting and bruised. But his manner of telling them, shh, don't talk about me, is showing his very quiet-like ministry, that his way of bringing about justice is unlike anything we have ever seen in this world. And to this day, we have never seen any other king or ruler like him since. So how does Jesus bring about justice through his silence? How does he proclaim justice? How does justice get proclaimed through the silence of Jesus? First, what do we mean by justice? So remember, this is a quotation from the book of Isaiah, and Isaiah is written in Hebrew. What we're reading from right now is an English translation of a Greek copy of Matthew's book and biography on Jesus. That's what we're reading right now, an English translation of a Greek copy And so we've got a Greek translation of a Hebrew text. So I think the best thing to do is if we're going to try and figure out what justice is, what is this word justice in the Hebrew? And it's mishpat. And when you and I hear justice in the English language, I fear that too many of you think of retribution. Meaning, I did something wrong to someone else, therefore I get penalized for it. So let me give you a scenario. A few years ago, I was at my house, and somebody broke into my car and my wife's car and stole stuff from us, and then we later found out that they caught these teenagers, and we knew it was teenagers because it was like, they didn't even steal the good stuff, you know? It's a bunch of dumb thieves, right? Like, grow up a little bit and make some money. (laughs) Anyway... So we left our doors unlocked. We thought, hey, we live in a nice, safe neighborhood. No one's going to come in. And sure enough, some teenagers stole some little gadgets and things in our car. And then we later found out they were caught. That's retribution. They got what was coming to them. They had to pay the penalty, the fine. I don't think they did jail time. Whatever they had to do, community service, right? That's retribution. That's justice was had. Thank you, officer. We've got justice. But wait. We want our stuff back. This is a different concept. The justice that mishpat is in the Hebrew is mostly in the Hebrew scripture a restorative justice, not a retribution justice. It it combines both ideas, but heavily in the Hebrew scriptures, it is about restoring what was lost, restoring what was stolen. So imagine 
that the worst possible thing happens to you and somebody takes the life of one of your loved ones? Has justice been served when that person is caught and sentenced and maybe even at worst killed? Or is there a sense of, no, I'm never going to get them back? Do you see the difference between these two concepts? Mishpat is both. The retribution of, you're going to get what you deserve for your injustice, but also this more beautiful and more wholesome concept of, we're going to restore what was lost. And so when it says that Jesus is the servant that is going to proclaim mishpat, he is going to restore and he is going to give what was coming, those who messed up whatever was happening. How in the world does Jesus restore and also bring retribution so that there's hope for the nations? Look at the end of our text. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench until he brings justice to victory. And in his name the Gentiles will hope. Until he brings this restoration to victory. And in his name, the Gentiles will have hope. The nations. Remember again, Gentiles is just a shorthand for saying all non-Jewish countries, nations, peoples. How in the world does Jesus bring restoration and retribution and hope to the whole world? Especially when it is the world that has committed injustice. The plot is thickening. The riddle is getting more knotty. How do we untie the riddle? Solve the problem? The answer is found in the book of Isaiah. Okay? Isaiah is a prophetic book, 66 chapters. Some people call it the mini Bible. 39 chapters of judgment, 27 chapters of hope. Right at 39, there's a transition right in chapter 40. And it says, hope, hope to the nations. It's a transition from judgment, judgment to hope. And where we find this section is in chapter 42. What side is that? Judgment side or hope side? Hope side. We're all awake, right? Hope side. The hope side of Isaiah. And this is the first of four poems. It's called servant songs, like music you sing. It's a poetry. This is the first of four poems that are linked together in the hope section. Because you guys know how much I love just digging out and you know, we can call it nerding out the Bible. I would love to just spend the next 20 minutes going through all four of them, but we're not. Because I know some of you are like, let's just get to the point. Okay? Here's the point. The first and the last have so many incredible links together that when you start reading the first with the last, you realize the chosen anointed servant who's going to proclaim justice is the same servant in Isaiah chapter 53. So turn there. With me to Isaiah chapter 53. Many of you that have been around Christian churches know that this passage is used quite often to say, wow, who could this servant song be about other than Jesus? And sure enough, you're right. Many New Testament authors will say, 
this last poem is about Jesus. And so I would want to make the argument, we are on good grounds to say all four poems are about Jesus. But the first one asks the question. It makes a statement. The anointed chosen servant is going to proclaim justice, but do it quietly. How does that get resolved? Isaiah chapter 53, page 613, if you're using the black Bibles. And let's look at verse 5. That same chosen servant, he was pierced for our transgressions. And then I want to make sure you catch this. The word crushed here is the same word for bruised when he talked about the bruised reed in Isaiah 42. But he was pierced for our transgressions and he was bruised for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace and with his wounds we are healed. Already we should start seeing the answer to the riddle. How is Jesus going to proclaim justice? How is he going to deal with injustice? He is going to be crushed. He is going to be bruised. You deserve to be bruised. You're bruised because of your sin. We're bruised. The nations have created all kinds of violence. There's all kinds of injustice. There's all kinds of bad rulers and people who have committed oppression against the poor and the weak, but instead, Jesus, the suffering servant, will himself become weak. He will be crushed. He will be bruised, not because of his sin, but because of your sin, the nation's sin. Keep reading. Drop down to verse 7. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Do you understand how he proclaims justice and doesn't open his mouth? He becomes like a sheep that is about to get slaughtered. If we read ahead in our story of Matthew's gospel, You'll notice that when he is being accused of all kinds of things that he did not commit, he could have, he should have in some respects, spoken up and stood up for himself and said, no, that's not true. But instead, he remained silent all the way to the point of his death. Like a sheep led to the slaughter. This is how he proclaims justice without crying aloud from the rooftops, but silently hanging from a cross. Keep reading. Verse 10. When you read the phrase, will of God, I want you to know that it's the same phrase used for the pleasure of God, the delight of God, used in Isaiah 42 and in Jesus' baptism that I believe that the Jesus' baptism quotation is from. So we read earlier in the service, Matthew 3, Jesus gets baptized, the Spirit comes upon him and God speaks, behold, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased, with whom I take delight in. Isaiah 42 says that I have a chosen servant with whom I am delighted in. That's the same phrase when you read the phrase, will of the Lord. So let me read it to you in that way so you can connect the dots here. Yet, it was the pleasure of God to bruise him. 
He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. This then brings everything together in my mind. How does Isaiah 42 come true where the suffering servant is the chosen one who God's spirit rests and his pleasure and delight is upon him and that he is going to go to his death like a sheep led to the slaughter, dying for the sins of the whole world. And this pleases the Lord. He takes pleasure in it. He delights in it. And the answer that this text gives is not that God looks down and sees murder and a man hanging on a cross and says, yeah, I love when people get killed. That's not how you should read this text. It did not please him in that way to see violence being done to his son. It pleased him in this way, that when his soul made an offering for guilt, this prolonged days and the prospering of his hand, in other words, it led to the fruit of salvation to the Gentiles to the world, to the nations, or as we started the service, hope to the world. Jesus Christ then is the hope to the world through his death on a cross as he silently dies like a sheep led to the slaughter, as he hangs on a cross and the only words he shouts are prayers to the Father and asking for forgiveness for the very people he killed that killed him. He didn't kill anybody. That was a little slip. (laughs) Jesus hangs on the cross. The Richard Sibbs line is so good, isn't it? He shed tears for those who shed his blood. As he says, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. As he prays prayers and he dies in our place. And then when he has ascended to heaven after his victorious Rising again from the dead, he presents himself to the Father before the throne of God, and the Father is pleased with what the Son has done. This is how Jesus fulfills Isaiah 42 and Isaiah 53 and all of the servant songs. This is how Jesus brings justice to the world. Both kinds of justice. Did you catch that? Who should be punished for all of the evil and suffering in the world. Well, we should be. Have you contributed in any way to hurt anyone in your life whatsoever? Have you contributed to the human condition and the problem of bringing suffering on your friend, your family member, your neighbor, your coworker? Have you ever said something, done something that's just deeply hurt someone? You have contributed to the problem of suffering. So what's justice then if the cosmic God of the universe is going to bring justice even to you? Well, then it should be retribution. You should get what's coming to you. But instead, Jesus took your place. And then how does God bring restoration justice where he restores what was lost? The whole story of the Bible is summed up in this simple idea. God made it so that you and I would be co-rulers of the whole earth and not be full of evil, pain, and suffering. And we would look to him to define what good and evil is, but instead we proudly and arrogantly said, no, no, we're going to define what's right and wrong. We want the knowledge of good and evil. We're going to tell everyone else we know the right way to live on this earth. Don't tell me how to live. 
don't need some God or Bible or outside transcendent authority down on me. I'm good all by myself. That is the problem that leads to suffering. And through Jesus Christ, he says he is restoring that image, that picture of God and man working together again so that his spirit would come upon you. And what was lost in the very early stages of the story of the Bible is being restored in Jesus Christ. So both retribution and restoration by Jesus' life, death, burial, resurrection, and now he reigns and rules as the ascended Lord over all. So therefore, you should come. You should come to Jesus. He is gentle, and he is lowly in heart. I want to close with these final words from Jonathan Edwards, because I think at this point, if your soul has no sense of worship, then let our dear friend, Jonathan Edwards, help your smoldering wick and fan the flame of your passion for the glory and majesty of God. One of the greatest sermons Jonathan Edwards ever gave was about the excellency of the Son of God, Jesus Christ. And in there, he says that there is an admirable conjunction of diverse and paradoxical elements in the person of Jesus Christ. Did you guys like that line? Whoa, my soul is soaring now, Phil. Woo-hoo! Phil translation, there is a combination of two what seem to be opposing concepts that come together in a beautiful way that only leads you to worship. So let's let Edwards tell us what those two conjunction of admirable, diverse, paradoxical elements are. In Jesus Christ, he possesses all of the attributes of God, so when we come to him, we meet him in his infinite highness and his infinite lowliness. Christ is infinitely great. He is high above all. He is higher than the King of kings. He is the Lord of lords, higher than the highest heaven, higher than the highest angel of all the heavens. So great is Christ that all men and all kings, all princes, they look like worms crawling in the dust before him. All of the nations of the earth, Isaiah chapter 40 says, they are like a drop in a bucket compared to him. He is so high that he is infinitely above us and will never, ever need us. He is so far above our reach that we cannot be profitable to him. And he is above our minds that you will never fully comprehend him. His knowledge and his wisdom has no bound. His power is infinite. None can resist him. His riches are immense. They are inexhaustible. And his majesty is infinitely awesome. Yet, Jesus is of infinite lowliness. He comes down to the lowest place. He takes notice of beggars. He cares for the most despised and hurting people of the world. He is so high that he had to have come so low to take gracious notice of even little children. What is even more significant is that Christ takes notice of the most unworthy, the most sinful creatures that have no right even asking God for a thing And those that have infinitely offended God's holiness and character by living in such a sinful and selfish law to themselves, yet in Jesus Christ we meet an infinitely high but infinitely lowly God, all seen in the person 
of Jesus Christ. Let's pray together.